Uh, welcome, everybody. Uh, my name is Tim Folta. I'm a chair-elect of the STR division. And today we're uh, super honored to have Harbir Singh in our Meet the Scholar um, interview session. So uh, we have a few hours with Harbir, and uh, um, I'm excited for it. Um, I have a few questions I want to ask him with. I'll do a brief introduction. Uh, I think it works nicely if you uh, ask your own questions in the chat feature and, and I may get to those or I may call on you to, to ask uh, yourself uh, of Harpier uh, those questions. So uh, why don't we proceed? Uh, welcome. Uh, let's see. I want to share my screen. <clears throat> Okay, so this is our session. Um, a little introduction here. Uh, Harbeer is at the Wharton School. He's the William and Phyllis Mack Professor of Management and co-director of the Mack Institute for Innovation, faculty director of the Huntsman Program. It'd be interesting, Harbeer, to get your perspective on those organizations. Sure. Uh, PhD at the University of Michigan and uh, MBA in Indian Institute of Management. Uh, he was the VPS division chair uh, in 97 and 98. Um, amazingly, over 73,000 Google citations, 50, 50 publications in top journals, over 50. Uh, he's written two books geared towards practitioners uh, and those were highlighted today in SMS's announcement that Harbir is the winner of the 2020 C.K. Prahalad Distinguished Scholar Practitioner Award. So uh, our interview is timely, Harbir, and you can see the list of names uh, that preceded uh, uh, him and they're quite esteemed. Uh, he's been on, he served the division and the, the academy in lots of different ways, editorial boards, um, one of the key contributions, I think, and we're, we're going to get to it in our discussion today, is, is his role as advisor to so many PhD students, uh, successful PhD students. And uh, I think it's fair to say that Harbir is known for his research on corporate governance, uh, corporate strategy, joint ventures, management buyouts, acquisitions. Uh, so uh, we'll probe him a little bit uh, on some of those issues as we go forward. So, without further ado, Harbir, uh, welcome. Thank you. Um, I think it's nice maybe to, to get to, to some personal stuff off the bat. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, your background, uh, uh, where you grew up, um, what, uh, what people pay, played a a pivotal role in your life and, and uh, what led you to a career in academics and um, were you doing any anything uh, else uh, professionally before you entered the doctoral program questions like that thanks thanks tim uh, thanks everyone for taking the time in uh, on a beautiful august day to listen to a scholar drone on and on about research uh, so i'm just delighted that you're you're you I don't know, we got, you're not showing the best judgment, but you know, we'll make the most of this time. <laughs> uh, 
But I, so I, I uh, uh, Tim, very good question. We, we often don't think about where we came from and what brought us here. That's, I think, really important, particularly looking back now in this stage of my career. So I grew up in India. Um, my father was an engineer and actually built, uh, he was a civil engineer. He, he built the second largest dam in India uh, as, a, as a young executive engineer. And so I very much had the idea of engineering, analytics, and so on. Uh, I ended up doing an undergrad in engineering, actually electrical engineering uh, and computer science. Uh, at that time, it was, uh, I was in one of the leading engineering schools. It had a lot of uh, resources connected to uh, foreign institutions. Uh, so in my undergrad uh, sort of thesis, um, I, um, we had just bought, the institute had just bought a semiconductor diffusing chamber. And so for my thesis, I diffused a transistor uh, with, you know, from, from using the masking and the optical camera and all of that. And it was to calibrate the machine. And uh, my, I had a partner with me whose father was a professor and I kind of got interested in research. I said, this is really interesting to sort of calibrate something and write about its properties and all of that. And of course, somebody manufactures it somewhere else. But then I, when I graduated, um, the job I got was um, from in a commercial organization, Philips, the Dutch multinational uh, in the Indian operation. And they put me in marketing and I was absolutely astounded that, you know, what do I know about marketing? And, you know, I just diffused a transistor and here I am trying to sell industrial lighting equipment uh, to bureaucrats. Uh, and, uh, but then I learned a lot about what I didn't know about commercial activity. And so I decided to do an MBA um, and I went to the Indian Institute of Management, which Asim Kaul, who's here on this call also went there. And Asim is my former student as well. Um, and when I finished, I remember telling my friends, I'll, I'll, this is the last time I'll be in class, you know, I've done my master's, I'm ready to take on the world. And I joined a, a consumer marketing company and uh, I got a, a very fast track um, because they, they really wanted MBAs. And I realized that I was on the road and I realized that, you know, this is not very interesting that basically I'll end up, my epitaph will say he sold you know, uh, 1 million yards of textiles. I'm not sure that's, uh, you know, I don't know if that's motivating enough. It certainly was to many, uh, but I didn't, wasn't that keen on it. And also I felt our decision-making process was very ad hoc and odd. So I decided to apply for a PhD saying, maybe I'll learn a bit more and applied to University of Michigan among others. And I applied actually in management science. And my essay was about decision-making under uncertainty and how people revert to heuristics. I didn't call it heuristics, then I called it thumb rules. And I wanted to know if people can use optimization better and hedging strategies better. So I ended up in Michigan doing a PhD in statistics and uh, ran into CK Pralad over there. And he said, what the hell are you doing theorems and proofs? And I said, I'm trying to pass my comprehensive exams. And he said, you realize you'll keep doing theorems and proofs for the rest of your life. And I was so clueless, I didn't realize that's what the job was about. I said, well, I better change my field. And I ended up in strategy. So that's the long answer to a short question. Okay, great. 
Um, and so after you change, it was originally about dissertation under, or not dissertation, about uh, was it strategy under uncertainty or decision making under, yeah, uncertainty? under uncertainty? Bayesian Bayesian statistics and things like and that. And so, how did it change? What was your dissertation about after you moved? So to it became so. My first, I read a whole bunch of books because you know the uh, Samina will know this from Michigan. At that time, we had three different influences. We had C.K. Prahlad with a very field-based influence. We had Berger von Affelt with a very mathematical analytical approach, and Cynthia Montgomery with a very empirical approach. So I ended up reading all these different types of things. And um, I would say when I read Rommel's work, I said, you know, this is interesting. I can do something on M&A and he's done something on diversification and really understand whether with stock returns, you get the same results as you do with, uh, with uh, accounting returns. Um, and also I felt that the market for corporate control might compete away the, the benefits of relatedness. So that was the question. I pursued. Interesting. Okay. And uh, who was your advisor? Cynthia Montgomery was my advisor okay. uh, on the thesis. Berger Wannefeld was on, a, on the committee. Uh, C.K. Prala was very much involved and he actually wanted me to do field work. Uh -huh. And he kept saying, you know, don't just keep spinning tapes. You know, you've got to go out and meet people. Uh -huh. And I just wanted to get a job. So uh -huh. I spun the tapes. Oh, that's great. So we're related in some way because Cynthia was a Purdue, Purdue yes. grad. So, so. You are. Yes. That's great. Um, uh, and and uh, who were, uh, I mean, when I was a young scholar, even now, Bruce Kogut was my, is my academic idol. I think Kogut's fantastic, right? Uh, everything he writes has such magic in it for me. Um, who was your academic? I know Bruce was a, a colleague of yours at Wharton. The quarter, yeah. yeah, one of my, I think my introduction to international business research came about by working with Bruce on this article on foreign direct investment and the role of cultural differences, where we created an index of uh, national cultural differences um, and, and cultural, yeah. So in terms of uh, idols, you know, that's a very, very good question. I had several different types of idols. I think actually in statistics, uh, Mahala Nobis, uh, who had this Mahal Nobis D squared measure of deviation from uh, up to calculate outliers, he actually did that with uh, studies of crops in India. So this was somebody who actually was sitting somewhere in India doing this work. And I thought that was amazing. And it became part of every computer package uh, but I certainly in the field, I would say Dick Rumelt, um, you know, Alfred Chandler, um, certainly C.K. Pralad, um, Cynthia Montgomery, and then you can go down the list. I mean, uh, you know, some of my contemporaries, Jay Barney and others have made tremendous contributions. Um, I will say that to me, the most interesting thing, since this is about us being researchers, is to really triangulate three things. One is the phenomenon itself, which is the phenomenon of strategy or decision-making. And my management science kind of that I did for a year and a half was very useful in that, the modeling idea, abstracting from the phenomenon. The second is kind of theory building. And the third is the empirical uh, rigor. And triangulating the three things is I think really, really important. But you have to look at your own competitive advantage and, you know, work from there. I think that's the other choice one has to make. 
so that's kind of how I, some of my idols are in the phenomena area, some are in the empirical and some are in the theory. Okay. Right. Now, um, like my own work, your work might be characterized as pertaining to corporate strategy. Right. And you are one of the pioneers uh, in corporate strategy and continue to be uh, with work on diversification with Cynthia Montgomery and Ned Bowman mm -hmm. in the in the 80s and Jay Anand in the 90s. Um, uh, with him, your work touched upon alliances and entry and Bruce Kogut, uh, Maurizio Zolo, Sijin Chang, Prashant Kakalde. Ranjay Gulati, Jeff Dyer, um, and your work on alliances uh, in the 90s continues uh, uh, with this corporate strategy theme and alliance processes. And that kind of evolved into, into work on dynamic capabilities, what we call now dyna dynamic capabilities in the 2000s or so. Right. So I don't know if that's an accurate characterization of, of your work. Uh, and it's only a handful of the people that you've worked with, and I don't mean to dishonor those those people by leaving them out. But uh, uh, um, so, how do you think about corporate strategy and the journey that you've been on? Yeah, um, uh, my most recent co-author um, actually is uh, Asim, who's on the on the call, so Asim might might weigh in with. Uh, the frustrations of being a co-author as well, but certainly we did some good things on private equity and how that market works. Um, but I would say that's a great uh, summary, by the way, of my my journey, uh, Tim. So thank you for that. Um, I would say corporate strategy, uh, Jay Bani told me this about 15 years ago. He was saying, is corporate strategy just going to fizzle out? And he meant it not in a negative way. He was kind of trying to say it has to be big. It has to be important. And you look today and you see corporate strategy is in fact extremely important today. So I'll give you, uh, you know, uh, one of the things I've been doing, the CK Pralada influence is always trying to look at the phenomenon. And um, I was speaking to someone at uh, McKinsey and Company about where, in this whole issue of where profits come from, I asked, you know, where does competitive advantage come from in your mind, okay? And I was surprised at the answer. The answer was where to play is more important than how to play. So corporate strategy is actually the bigger question in their practice today. And I've heard this from multiple people. It's not that I talk to consultants for field work, but I happen to talk to uh, someone who is one of my uh, students there. And then uh, uh, if you think about why that's the case, Look at the role of activist investors today, something very, very new. And of course, it's a, it's a reprise of what happened in the 80s with the, they were called uh, corporate raiders then, and now they're rebranded as activists. It sounds a lot better. Um, but, you know, um, this notion of growth is important, but value creation is also important. And this tension between growth and value creation um, I don't think because there are, because there are kind of uh, discrete steps in growth with external growth, you are always in some imbalance between growth and value creation. And that's why we see this ongoing question of this company has not created value, this other one has, and the CEO comes in and, 
um, you know, there's some other field work by, uh, that somebody did on what CEOs can do. Their tenure is reducing. And so what they do is inorganic transactions, acquisitions, divestitures, partnerships, because they can't wait for the, it takes too long for the organic stuff to happen. You know, um, think about what's happening in GE, right? I mean, uh, they've had a series of uh, departed CEOs because they've got to fix some very, very big problems and organic growth is not going to do it. And in fact, Flannery, who's a Wharton graduate, whom I don't know, wasn't uh, CEO of GE for just, uh, I think, maybe a year and a half. And he got, he got uh, asked to leave because he was moving too slowly. So I think this issue of corporate strategy really is about where to play and the imbalance between growth and value maximization that growth, if you take inorganic growth, is, is discrete, it's not continuous. So you don't, get to, you don't get to that optimal point, as it were. Tim, I think you're muted. Uh, okay, I'm taking notes, so that's, uh, that's very insightful, okay. Now, um, uh, so, uh, it's nice to get your, your thoughts on corporate strategy and how you think it seems to be uh, actually increasingly important. Uh, yeah. And so that suggests it's, it's more relevant uh, for companies today than it, it might have been before. Um, uh, now, here we are in the midst of this coronavirus um, issue, and I've actually seen some evidence of... Um, firms, uh, corporate strategies changing uh, in the midst of this coronavirus. Have you seen any evidence uh, of examples of corporate strategy and, and some of the, how the virus has affected uh, the corporate strategy of firms? Oh, absolutely. I think that's a great question because you also work in corporate strategies. So, you know, uh, you're thinking along those lines. Mm -hmm. um, you know, some of the more obvious ones are, of course, Microsoft and Amazon and uh, Zoom, which we are using. Um, but some of the other interesting ones, there's a company called Pin Duo Duo, which is in Shanghai, whose market value went up by $55 billion because they are kind of a fulfillment company in China. And the logistics of you know, shipping from China to other places and you know, handing off to other vendors, um, their, their value has gone up dramatically uh, there's a company called Atlassian from Australia, which is kind of a collaboration software company. Um, I kind of came across Atlassian maybe three years ago. And I was just saying, who are these guys? And they, they had a kind of world-class collaboration software, B2B. And it was a niche, you know. And what happened was, with the rise of this coronavirus, that has just taken off. And they can't even handle their growth. Their market value has gone up 15 billion since the coronavirus started. Of course, you have uh, Moderna, which uh, presumably has something, uh, some, uh, some compound for uh, COVID-19. It's, it's very early and who knows. Uh, their market cap went up 20 billion. Um, and then there's uh, Roche, which is in a partnership with a Chinese company called Chugai. And there's some uh, Actemra, which is also apparently a, a product that is doing well. So you see companies 
uh, kind of taking advantage of this. I, I mean, some of them are just fortunate, but again, it's a competitive game, right? That's what's interesting. Everybody has the same opportunity. And you see some people, and we're back to the Nelson and Winter or the Winter idea about repeatable process. I think those who have a repeatable process that they can hitch to this, uh, this, this new business model and they can scale it. So, you know, Henderson had this idea of architectural competence and component competence. I think those who have the architectural competence actually are the ones who are able to take advantage because component competence uh, which is, you know, particular routines in particular places or particular modules may not be enough. Um, and one thing you said, which I found very interesting, I mean, as you were looking at my journey, uh, that you actually inferred what was very much an intent in my journey, which was to look at alliance and acquisition capability in terms of codified and tacit knowledge and repeatable process as really a window into how capabilities are produced. And today, again, we are seeing post-COVID, we are seeing that. Mm -hmm. Now, um, I was very pleased as I was prepping for this interview this morning to open up my email and see that you won this award, uh, the CK Prahalad Award. And I'd like you to say something about it. And the, and the last question is kind of a nice bridge to that because it suggests your involvement in, uh, in practice Right. your influence on practice and this award today that you uh, that was announced is uh, suggestive of that so let me, if you don't mind let me just spend a minute uh, reading an excerpt from this announcement uh, that sms put out uh, harbour's research centers on managing alliances and acquisitions corporate governance and business development with his relational view and work on the dedicated alliance fu function being some of the most influential in alliance research. His work has been published in a number of quality journals, blah, 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 and is, um, among, and is an among the most cited work in the field of strategic management. Uh, his book, Strategic Leaders Road, Roadmap, which integrates strategy and leadership principles, has greatly inspired executives, as did his books, Fortune Makers, the leaders creating China's great global companies, and the India way. So uh, there's, a, there's another book that I missed, I apologize, which illustrate how these principles have been applied in these emerging economies. Harbir's practical advice in articles such as how to make strategic alliances work served as a template for implementation and guided executives in many companies, some of which invited Harbir to advise them as a consultant. In almost four decades of teaching and executive education programs at the Wharton School, and engaging in open and customized programs in leading companies such as Daimler-Benz, Philips, Accenture, the Tata Group, uh, Aditya, Birla Group, and Nissan. Harbir has brought together academic rigor and managerial relevance and shaped the perspectives of executives in the US, Europe, and Asia, underscoring the human element and the nurturing of soft managerial skills. So, uh, you know, this is an important award in several respects, one of which is it's, it's uh, named after one of your mentors. But I, I'm wondering if you'd just like to make any comment with regards to, to that award and what it means to you. Uh, thanks, Tim. Of course, it was a huge uh, surprise because these are done, I think, looking at resumes and so on, a very pleasant uh, surprise. It has great resonance for me because CK was uh, the person who 
asked me to think about joining the field and uh, <clears throat> you know um, I um, it was a time when strategy was really my, I, I joined the field and then I went to the my first Academy of Management meeting where we spent two days discussing what is strategy and I was saying my god I'm in a field where they don't know what the field is but then I love the debate and I think uh, you know, people of Indian origin and others who know people of Indian origin know that Indians love to argue. So I said, <laughs> you know, this is the right place. This is the place for me. Um, and, uh, you know, but it was a big step. And I think CK is what, what resonated with me, I still remember, is he said, you know, it, you want to be in a field where the ideas are still growing. And this place, the ideas are growing. And, and he had done field work in his thesis on the functioning of the multinational corporation. And so he felt that decision-making in the diversified corporation would be, is a black box and would take some unpacking. So I think I uh, lay a lot of credit at his feet for you know, inviting me to join the field. That's great. And I know you've, you've worked with a lot of, um, a lot of outstanding scholars and you've nurtured a lot of outstanding scholars um, I, uh, if you don't mind i'd like to just mention a few of your doctoral students that you've, you've nurtured i think i'm getting most of the ones for which you were either advisor or chair i know wharton does uh, uh, has both both those roles so uh, gary moskowitz Maurizio zolo vipin gupta Jay Anand, Piero Morissini, I apologize if I'm mis mispronouncing names, Sijin Chang, uh, Fanish Piranam, uh, Sendal Atharaj, Prashant Kale, Farid Haryanto, uh, let's see, Andy Chang, Piero Morissini, uh, Vikas Akarwal, Akarwal, Elisa Alvarez Garrido, Anuja Gupta, Joydeep Chatterjee, Anindya Ghosh, Asim Kaul, who's with us today, Sarath Balachandran, Shiva Agaral, Pesha McGrath, Ram Ranganatham, and Lisa Tang. And I, if, I, if we left anybody out, uh, please forgive us, but uh, mostly I, I wanted to highlight uh, that many of those names we all know uh, and have left a huge imprint on the field. But there's, there's also a huge list of, of folks. Uh, uh, so um, you must be doing something right, uh, Harbir, and I think I know how you're going to answer that. But, uh, <laughs> but there are lots of people like me uh, that work with doctoral students, and we wish we could, we could work effectively with them. And, and uh, um, what are your secrets? Well, I think... Um very honestly, I think um, they're very talented people. And, um, and I mean that sincerely. And, and it was really about trying to identify what the gaps were that or what might be impediments and trying to work through those. Um, and that's the mo probably the most important thing. I think it's about the person. And uh, um, I, I think people had different packages of skills and trying to sort of help them see places where uh, they might need to, it's almost like a coaching coaching job, you know. Uh, so, so it's really about, you know, as a coach, you see, well, what does the player need to, to up their game? 
and uh, the player is better at that game than you are. You're the coach, you know. So I think that was the one analogy I would take. Um, the second one is, um, I, I think I really like to work on things I'm very excited about. And I think my students, um, I think they, they were excited about their questions. And I think that really helped uh, moving the needle forward. The third thing was uh, trying to get access to phenomena any way we could, whether it was, you know, surveys or, uh, you know, reading accounts about these decision makers or doing some kind of pilot, you know, um, uh, as I seen the, the paper that we did on private equity, there was a student who had studied the chemical industry and had seen some things. Uh, so, you know, we kind of scaled it up. So I think the triangle of phenomena, theory and method, I think sort of trying to use all of them, but really trying to understand what's the particular strength of the student and the student in combination with me, if it was some joint work. Right. And at what point in a student's uh, journey do you um, connect them with practice? So I think we did, we had a seminar in strategy that I teach and I, I think from the, I, I used to have a couple of HBR articles in that, which was, you know, deliberate. Um, I think uh, I still do this. I ask people to, for each session, come up with a, you know, something on the outside world, whether it's their own experience or reading an article about a company. If you're doing resources, I want to see a list of resources of a particular company. Go to capabilities, I want to see capabilities. You talk about strategic leaders, I want to see strategic leaders. Just so that we kind of understand what kind of data is out there. And also with the group, people have different insights. Some people have worked in particular companies. So I think that generated this idea that we need to also look outside. But I, I, again, I think in all fairness, it's about the talent of the students and, and in any PhD, PhD programs by definition have, get very motivated people. And so you have very talented people and it's about unlocking, helping them unlock their talent. I think you are uh, muted again, Tim, I think. I wanna, I wanna open it up to the audience on this issue because I, my sense is that there may be others. It could be that the people on the, on the, the video are, are so new in their careers and they're not working with doctoral students. But, but if there are any questions about the doctoral process and how Harbier manages, please, uh, please ask those in the chat feature. And you could ask Asim what, what his experience was, and if it's at all consistent with what I'm talking about. Yeah, Asim, are you prepared to discuss that actually? Well, so the only thing I'll say, uh, I mean, Tim, to your question is, um, you know, my first ever RA project with Harbir was actually half a consulting project with, with, a, with a company, uh, I guess it's okay to mention that, um, with Cisco, uh, where we oh, were looking at, right, we were kind of, doing this project trying to help Cisco think about their small and medium enterprise business, but mm -hmm. also using that to think about Cisco's acquisition capabilities, right? So it was a beautiful, I mean, I have to admit it never actually quite went anywhere, but, but that's probably my fault. But, you know, I, I think it, it's a great example of the kind of seamless integration of, of theory 
and, and practice uh, or sure. academia and practice that I think was very much part of uh -huh. uh, the experience of sort of uh, being advised by Habir. Right. Hmm. Yeah, I'd forgotten about that. But remember the, the on the on the PE project, it was a somebody who five years ago had seen private equity acquisitions in uh, from pharma companies, yeah. from chemical yeah. companies. I, I, I mean, literally, like we started that project by just talking to people about, you know, w what were their experiences with PE acquisitions. And I think we the spark for that was just the stories we were hearing was so different from the sort of standard corporate radar stories. We said, okay, we have to write a paper about this. And then we said, okay, how do we, what's the theory and what's the data, right? But again, it's the spark coming from, right, right. from, from actual experience. And Asim, this came up and uh, it came out two years ago. Asim then scaled it up big time, took it across industries and all kinds of things. I don't think it would have got published. It was just the industry specific thing we started with. Um, and, and, and I just want to say one more thing as we open up uh, to others. Um, I think that one doesn't have to identify company A and go there. I think there are these natural connections and I think that takes us quite a long way. Uh, and I think that's, uh, but we have to be, uh, we have to be sort of focused on the question a bit more and abstract enough from the question to get somewhere. Here's a question from Samina. So how do you guide students in narrowing their dissertation topics? So it's very interesting. I mean, I, I think um, it's all over the lot. I mean, some students come in with what's a 10 year agenda and they don't know it. Uh, others come in with, you know, very few come in with a smaller than a dissertation idea. So most of the time you're scaling it down. Um, I think there's also the issue of, uh, of just trying to understand what's the contribution. And uh, I think that's, uh, and I remember I should mention my own experience actually uh, in that regard. I'll just, and so I'll just do this and I'll talk about my own experience, which was very, it was hilarious, but at that time it was painful. Um, you know, so, so uh, I think the, the, the point is um, students are reading the best papers in each class. They're the best papers. And so some people feel they have a very long hill to climb and this idea is worthless because it's not there. So a lot of it is to say, hey, this is actually a good idea. Let's pursue this. And I think that's part of what I do. But just my own experience, which certainly informed me later on, I passed my comprehensive exams at Michigan. And then I said, okay, I'm gonna look around for a thesis. And I took a month off, you know, drove around the country, came back and began thinking great thoughts. And then three months into it, people began asking me, so what's the thesis? And I said, I'm, I'm working on it. And then, you know, I kept, I kept saying I'm working on it. So by the time I came into their offices with a thesis idea, they already had a very low opinion of me by that <laughs> <point. laughs> <laughs> I thought they thought I was next thing to sliced bread. And then I came up with this 10-year agenda and they said, this is completely non-researchable. Go away, you know. So I was astonished, you know. So I think uh, students tend to miss or to miscalibrate scale, among other things, and miscalibrate their own capacity. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. Um, and uh, are you more of a hands-on or hands-off advisor? 
varies a lot. I think it's person specific. I think with the seam, uh, you'll probably confirm I was pretty hands off. Is that fair, right? Good description. Um, in some cases, you, I guess. You said, I'm sorry, just to clarify, you said hands off. Hands off. Okay. Because he, he has so much talent, he just, you know, <laughs> you know. Every time I asked him to revise it, he would write a new paper. I said, okay, Asim, let's just do this one. And no, let's be clear. Up. Every time I came to you with something, you would basically give me the one deep inside that destroyed the paper, and then I would have to write a new paper. <laughs> okay. I, I, didn't, I just saw new papers. I was wondering what's going on, but he's a fast writer, you know, so hands off mostly. Uh, but I think at times, you know, um, one has to really help in the writing process because uh, people don't, uh, it's a certain style of writing. And, uh, you know, I get very involved in the writing process uh, just to illustrate early on and then we let it go. And it's interesting, some people come with long, with complete drafts, with others I would, most of the time I'd say start with an outline and then go to a longer outline, then write a section. And that way we can get the, you know, the wheels turning. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Um, well, you know, I have, I have some more questions I want to ask you, uh, particularly how you interact with executives um, and your teaching and your research. But Anita McGann is with us and she has a very provocative question herself. So, Anita, nice uh, to see you. Oh, it's so nice to see you and, and to hear this, this story of your development, uh, Harbiera. Thank you for that. The, the question I wanted to ask um, relates to the theories that support uh, our understanding of diversification. And uh, I wanted to ask you whether or not you're concerned about whether diversification is under theorized in the face of two big challenges that are going on. Uh, the first one's in the world, this uh, uh, move away from liberalized trade and toward greater nationalism, which mm -hmm. all else equal would seem, you know, to potentially constrain firm scope. Um, at least uh, geographically. And then the second is the stakeholder view of the firm, uh, which of course, Asim, your student has contributed to so greatly, yes. um, where you know, there's this challenge to the shareholder argument about whether diversification you know, it, it makes sense. And you know, a lot of our theories about diversification compare diversification, uh, um, merger and acquisition with uh, alliances. And a lot of that logic is a, is it relates to shareholder kind of points of view. Does the stakeholder argument, you know, raise fundamental new questions about the basis of diversification? Yes, very, uh, I think there's many layers to the question, but a very, very important question. And Anita, you have, uh, you've done so much in the area as well. So love to hear more about your thoughts. Uh, I think, the, this issue of purpose is going to become fundamental down the road, the pursuit of purpose. This is not a flash in the pan. I think um, too much has gone on in terms of maximizing shareholder value as the only goal. And you see that with the business roundtable coming in with a public statement that they're going to pursue, that they're going to sort of signal that uh, there's a there's a more of a multi-stakeholder agenda. Uh, the second uh, issue that relates to purpose is um, really about some interesting research. I think it's in applied economics, um, but it has a behavioral piece to it that companies, there was a survey of purpose uh, 
a pursuit of purpose within the company, you know, high and low kind of a scale, not a very good scale. But what they found was that the pursuit of purpose was associated with higher performance, that in a sense, the trade, the presumed trade-off, the Milton Friedman trade-off, um, maybe, maybe either time-bound or maybe an assumption that people have pursued. So I think purpose is going to be really, we have to study the pursuit of purpose. Now, having said that, how do you research it is a huge question, and we'll see what happens with that. Uh, I think your second point around multinationals and globalization is an excellent one as well. Uh, I'll make a different point, which, which is important to me. I just discovered it uh, actually doing some field work that private equity, more and more companies have gone private. The number of public companies in the New York Stock Exchange has dropped substantially, I think as much as maybe 60% in the last few years. Why is that? You know, and, and uh, as Asim was noting, it couldn't be that the private equity people are just, you know, uh, sharks pursuing value. Managers are opting to go there and they talk about more patient money and so on. So I'm not saying private equity is a solution, but what I'm saying is the errors of the public corporation and the, and the short-termism that, that comes with it um, and the cosmetic nature of judgment of CEO performance um, need to be addressed and uh, there's rhetoric is not enough. So you're going to see the business roundtable doing some things. You'll see companies going private and that has its own trade-offs. Um, I think, however, that companies like Danaher, which have managed to execute long-term uh, are probably in the right place. In other words, I think a lot of this is rhetoric um, and uh, activist investors, when they attack companies, according to some research I just saw, um, are mostly right in the targets they identify. They're taking risk. Uh, and by the way, they have the collaboration of the block holders. I was saying, how can it be that an activist investor can be right so often? And the, I mean, statistically, right? How can you be right so often in an efficient market? And the answer is that the block holders are actually collaborating with them. And this is really the, the face on the front end. So I think the model, I think implicitly your question is, is the model of the public shareholder owned diversified firm under threat? The answer, my answer is yes. Yeah. But the, all, these, all, the, all these strands. And the globalization thing, actually, I have a point of view. And my point of view is that there's a lot of interdependence below the surface. So it's very hard to unwind the interdependence that exists. Uh, and the cost of unwinding is very high. Uh, so I think we'll see what happens. I think we'll, we'll see how companies evolve. Um, and I think one of the things they'll do is second sourcing, hedging strategies. Um, Bruce Kovet, by the way, to your point, Tim, had this idea of uh, a real options approach to supply chain. And that was kind of in the 80s, you know, that you, you have supply chains as a real option and you hedge against them. I think that's going to happen now, I think. Okay. Supposition, okay. hypothesis. Okay. And if you don't mind, Harbir, I know this is an interview for you, but, but uh, Anita, um, do, you, do you want to react to Harbir? Yeah, what are your thoughts? <laughs> this is no, a I mean, 
I'd love to hear your thoughts too, Tim. You know, this is your your research area, but uh, no, thank you so so much for such a thoughtful answer. I think this this idea of piercing kind of the the veil of distance between the firm and its shareholders, its investors, yeah. is a very fruitful area. If, if investors are another stakeholder that um, has that contributes, um, you know, as 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 Cynthia would say, a fungible resource, which is investment capital then that's very different than if they're contributing advice and resource and you know uh, expertise such as a private equity investor would and you know access to uh, particular networks and things like that and i don't think that our field has theorized that fully yet um, yeah. and that there's a big opportunity yeah i uh, thank you that's uh, i completely agree uh, and and uh, anita let me ask you this question and then everybody else actually uh, I think that uh, the journals are starting to become more open again on bigger issues. I think for a while, it's not the journals, it's the, the, the body politic of uh, reviewers and all that. We got very hung up on, you know, uh, endogeneity issues, selection issues, and the questions became very narrow. I think what you're asking is a very, very big question, and it requires a field-based work, but also exploratory analysis. It won't be clean in every way but we need to have that see the light of day i agree very much yeah. so yeah and the, the journals now i think are so much more um you know the the the, the, the titles and the abstracts of the smj for every, every every issue that comes in to mm -hmm. me all the papers are interesting and you know a few years back um I, I don't want to say they weren't interesting, but they, they, they tended to focus much more on an established, narrow set of ideas. And uh, that's changing. I agree with that. I think it's, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic given what we see. Uh, and there are also strategy science and others. I think there's interest, but I, I think the rigor is important. Uh, I wanted to make one last point just before we leave that on this whole issue of questions was, I've actually been very impressed with this debate around effective medications for coronavirus. And for me, I think what's fascinating is the stakes are so high and yet the standards of evidence are not compromised by the scientists. And I think this notion of rigor versus relevance, which as we hear in my early days, I think this is an example of rigor and relevance. And I think um, one question is, if you're doing a piece of research, would you answer the question as if your life depended on it? You know, I think that might be a way to think about how, how serious the stakes are. Those are the questions we work on. Does the yeah. corporation survive? Do CEOs stay in their jobs, etc.? I was, I, I, one of my students is a guy named Ar Ar Arkady Sakartov. Oh, yeah. he, he did a nice uh, dissertation and resource redeployment. And a few years after his defense and his first few years at Wharton with you, Harbir, I, I would visit with him and he would, he would say, well, you know, I'm really, really down on the future of corporate strategy. The people that I talk to uh, are, um, just don't think there's much potential for, the, 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 in, in other words, the trajectory is downward. And I didn't agree with him at the time, and I certainly don't agree with him now. I mean, it seems to me that the questions like the one uh, Anita raised and you responded to are more important than ever. 
but uh, maybe you should react to that, Herbir. What do you what do you think about the the thesis that corporate strategy is in a downward trajectory? I think you know uh, both can be right in some sense. If you look at the speakers coming into seminar series, you see a lot of you know controlled experiments and so on. Uh, some of which have import for corporate strategy. Um, but I think if you look outside your window, you see a lot of important things happening with firms and and so on. And so you know that these issues are alive and well. Um, and I think the research, I think strategy is better than, as a field is, is more open than many uh, adjacent fields. And I think we often feel that we're kind of claustrophobic because of methodological constraints, but actually people can ask some pretty complex questions and pursue them. And I'd love to hear from people in the group about this. Uh, I think it's about pursuing a multi-year, multiple project kind of agenda, not a single paper agenda. And then you can do some of those, you know, those rigorous uh, designs, but your, your trajectory is really, is really uh, uh, along an important path. One of the finance papers I was talking about with respect to activist investors uh, asked, asked a really big question, but they did it with a research design where um, it was really firms that could be in either the top, the standard S&P 500, the S&P 1000, and add that interface and how they went up and down on that interface on market value was one of the randomized variables that they had a peer with who was also going up and down on those, on those deciles. Uh, so I think uh, with a big question, one can still design uh, those important issues, but but yeah, I think uh, I'm fascinated about what Arkadi reported, and I think that's that is a valid observation uh, mm -hmm. when you look at some of the talks and other things we see. Mm -hmm. I, I see there's a question that's related to this issue by Nakisha. Uh, Nakisha, you want to join us and offer your question? Uh, yes. Uh, thank you so much. Hopefully. You can hear, maybe not see me yet, but I'll ask my question. Um, so I'm I'm going into my second year at Baruch uh, College, and I focus on looking at mergers and acquisitions. And so I wanted to get your your thought on the current environment, looking at all these prominent retail companies that are going into bankruptcies, mm -hmm. and you know we always talk about synergistic values and finance and building value for the firm. I just wanted to get your thoughts about the opportunities that are happening now with so many companies available to be purchased or acquired. And right. See if there's more value than normal during this time period. Thank I think it's yeah, a very important point. I think um, uh, absolutely. I think you're going to see uh, somebody was saying that COVID is the the dream of all randomized control designers because you have the ultimate shock, right? Uh, and that's one thing, but in my view, just specifically on M&A and the scope of the firm, um, this idea of where to play versus how to play is going to be really, really important. And you see that with, you know, Lord and Taylor going bankrupt, uh, you, know, the, um, you, you know, many, many others, right? Uh, what was it, Neiman Marcus, uh, Brooks Brothers, that have been around for over a hundred years, declaring bankruptcy. Uh, and the question really is, how will they re redeploy their capabilities back to what Tim works on? Uh, how do you redeploy your capabilities to a higher value 
uh, opportunities. And of course, there's uncertainty. And, and the last line on that SMS um, citation is interesting because I do believe the human element and the decision maker and, and even biases and decision, we haven't really talked about biases in decision making. I think there's an established literature there. You can think about anchoring and adjustment, for example, the anchoring bias. Are people anchored on the wrong strategy? And so their adjustment around that anchor is not, not enough. You know, uh, so I think you're going to see managers and decision makers needing to make radical changes. Uh, and of course, there's risk. So you're going to see a distribution of outcomes. Mm -hmm. It's an excellent question. By the way, you can do experimental work on that too. Do an experiment, psychological experiment, do a analytical work with statistics, etc. And there's a, a person by the name of Anurvan, Anurvan Pant. Uh, would you like to offer your question? Hello, Harbeer. Thanks for taking time out for us today. So uh, it was uh, fascinating to hear you talk about the evolution of your ideas. And uh, a few minutes ago, as we were talking of uh, the, uh, the better understanding we have today of uh, stakeholder capitalism, I was reminded of uh, this piece a few years ago by Dobbin Jung on how uh, shareholder value maximization became an ideology. Now, I was wondering if today we are again at maybe some perfect storm conditions mm -hmm. for a realignment of ideology. There are newer actors. I think outspoken employees, particularly in Silicon Valley firms, have become very important stakeholders uh, in corporate strategy, I would feel. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I was wondering if there is, uh, you, you have any thoughts on whether we should be looking actively and theoretically at the role of ideology in corporate strategy? Mm. Well, that's a very interesting question. Um, I think the, with the right tools um, from political science, uh, ideology might be an interesting uh, lens with which to look at corporate strategy. That's an interesting point. Um, I do see that in, I have not looked at the governance literature lately, but uh, in the governance literature, corporate governance literature, there was a strand around managerialism and the managerialism strand had to do partly with ideologies that people had that were different from the stockholder maximizing ideology. So that might be worth, worth looking at as a, as a possible lens. Uh, I would kind of go and maybe connect it more to a different idea. If you look at uh, an article by Prahlad and Bettis, which was called The Dominant Logic. And I think that's a very, very interesting article and very applicable today, that how is the dominant, what kind of dominant logic might surface within an organization um, in the context of a rapidly changing environment? Um, so that would be something to look at. Um, speaking of fieldwork, and I, I'll keep my answer short because there may be other questions. Um, but speaking of fieldwork, I'm reminded of uh, opportunistically doing some fieldwork. Uh, Indra Nui from Pepsi, the former CEO, had just stepped down, I think, a year ago, and she was speaking in Philadelphia um, about her career. And she was CEO of Pepsi for 12 years. 
and she was very very frank it was a audience of about 100 people uh, but you know if you're a professor you could get a ticket to the thing and and she was saying that when she joined pepsi they really wanted to compete with coke and it was all about selling sugar water and she came in and said this was 12 years ago 14 years ago now and said we can't sell only sugary drinks we have to sell we can't sell salty snacks and you know she actually said this in her speech she said that some board members immediately said we knew something was wrong with this person we don't know what it was but now we know what it is she is not really shareholder oriented okay and it took her about a year to battle that and according to her she almost got fired but then what pepsi did in terms of diversifying its portfolio reducing the salt levels actually put them in a much stronger position and her concept was profit with purpose and that's one of the early people who did purpose so so i think there are some uh, the dominant logic might be a easier path than ideology which has you know many other dimensions to it thank you there's a there's a few more questions here but i, I want to ask you a few uh, before we get um, yeah. too far along uh, you know I, I guess when you won this award it suggests that you work closely with executives and it it, it suggests, I think there's enough evidence to suggest that you're very effective in working with executives. So from your, your uh, experience, what are the unique skills that scholars need to develop to mm -hmm. be effective with executives? Uh, so it's a very good question. Um, and I, I don't think I'm, you know, there are people who are more effective without a doubt. Uh, so it's really about knowing when to seek access, how to seek access, uh, take, a, take, take an opportunity when it prevents itself, presents itself. Um, I was lucky that when I transferred to Strategy CK, had a project with a glass company, Owens, Illinois, and they were going to try to build solar collectors. And he needed, he needed someone to do a like a three-month project on alternative technologies. So in the summer that year, I spent three months studying photovoltaic technology, uh, you know, the water-cooled uh, uh, solar technology, solar tube technology, the, the solar collectors which are there now, uh, also other, other technologies. Photovoltaic, by the way, which is now here, was not even uh, viable then. Uh, but CK went and presented that to these execs and I learned a lot from that. He didn't say, we've done this work and this is our answer. He said, well, what do you think is going to work? You know, which technology do you think is going to work? And they said, well, we want to take our tubes and put a coating on it and then sell it. And he said, why do you think that's going to work? So he kind of used the case discussion model with a deep amount of work that we had done and brought that at the end. And so what I learned from that was that you always try to understand what energizes your respondent. You start from there, but you have to come well prepared. You have to have something to give. And he had this young, you know, and I, I was literally off the board a year ago. So young fellow who looks like the only reason he's here is because he sits in the library all day. So he said, he's the guy, you know, you, you tell us about photovoltaic, you tell us about this. So, you know, you have to come in with some preparation. And I learned a lot from that. Okay. I'll keep my answers short now. So, and, and so, so, 
you know, maybe maybe your answer pertains to what I'm going to ask next, but but perhaps you can elaborate. What, what's your teaching style with executives, and how does it differ from regular MBAs? Uh, I think the surprisingly the notes are almost exactly the same. I would say ninety percent are the same. Uh, but I use a lot of I use a lot of exercises along the way. And I usually have, uh, if I can, I have a, a, a set of prep questions around the issue. So I ask them, you know, for example, if it's on m and I'll ask them to come in beforehand with successful and unsuccessful transactions in their knowledge base. Uh, and then I also ask them about, during the course of the session, about what they think drives success or failure. So it's kind of this uh, more interactive and I think they are very comfortable without cases to be given to them. They can bring in their own cases. They debate whether they are right or wrong. They'll say, well, you know, I don't have all the data. So it's really uh, same notes, uh, questions that have to do with application. But the other thing that I think we all can do, and I have discovered that it was quite effective, was to give them baselines. I try to use research to say, this is what we know, you know, about this particular thing. And uh, invariably, when we do M&A, they say, well, this is just abnormal returns. How do you know about satisfaction? How do you know about And I say, well, we don't know. But then do you know? You know, so, so I think that they're comfortable as long as you don't claim you have answers, mm -hmm. but you're a resource, they're okay. Mm -hmm. and, I, I don't, and I don't think it's about being the most charming and the most, you know, uh, exciting. I've, had, I've had followed people who have have them hanging from the rafters. I once followed a group where this was an Indian company and somebody I would not name before that, this was a software consulting company. And before me, someone had worked with them and said, you should be like McKinsey. You should be flying first class meeting CEOs in the US. And I came in and I asked them to do some things. And I said, you know, you shouldn't meet CEOs in the US. You know, you're not, you don't know what baseball teams, you don't know, you know, football, you know, all of that. Uh, how are you going to even get in the door? But you can scale up your software business and your outsourcing business. And they were really angry with me. They said, this guy is, you know, a jerk and all of that. But then afterwards, uh, they kind of, I was just saying that, you know, stick to your core competence. <laughs> that was the basic point, you know. So uh, sometimes you can be successful with audiences by telling them something that is actually not implementable. And I have taken the heat at times by saying, this is actually not implementable. And I'm not trying to discourage that. And I may be wrong, but you know. Mm -hmm. um, yesterday, yeah. Academic. So they think, you know, if you're nerdy and you're whatever, they don't, that's fine. You're playing your role. You're not a television host. Yeah. Um, yesterday, our uh, interviewee, um, uh, talked about how they no longer use cases mm -hmm. with executives. Is that a difference? Do you, do you not use case studies? I actually am one of the few who does. Um, um, but I, I do ask a lot of questions around short examples and I break up the case into particular questions that they connect with the short examples. Mm -hmm. Um, the downside is, I, I can understand why the person said that, the downside is that people feel the case is old or narrow or, you know, 
to non-generalizable. And um, but I think the flip side is that you can give them a bit more depth uh, that that they really need. You know, uh, so it's a bit of a trade-off. Without the case or with the case, you can do give more depth. With, with, with the, the case. case, I don't yeah. think you can go deep without the case. Uh-huh. And and if someone really asks me, I say, you know, if I'm teaching you surgery, then don't you want to know about you know the the track record of you know using this scalpel versus that scalpel? I mean, should I just say, hey, you know, do whatever you want, you know, you, you go go for it, you know? Uh-huh. So, you know, I think that that works. But I, again, I think it's, I don't think I can do the non-case thing. I can. I've done it, but it's not as good. Uh-huh. And the others who, who just, they're comfortable doing that and they've learned how to do that. So it's mm-hmm. personal style is the word I would say. Okay. Now, um, uh, also when you talk with the executives, uh, what, what corporate strategy issues are at the top of their minds at this point in time? Uh, there's probably a selection bias. Uh, sure. Because yeah. they approach you, uh, the corporate strategy expert. With, yeah, become programming. Yeah. But, um, so I think the I'm going to answer it in two ways. So there's a program we've done for a long time on MA, which I teach with a, a finance professor. And of course, these people want the tools. And so that's very straightforward. They want to do, you know, we have a case running through. I do the strategy part, he does the finance part, we have a legal part. Uh, but if I look at our general management program, it's called the advanced management program, it's a general management program. I think what they are most concerned about is uh, what in fact um, Anita was asking, you know, the issue of uh, the right scope of the firm. And uh, are we, how do we, is there a new paradigm out there or are we just struggling with, uh, you know, rapidly changing environment? So that's the big debate that they have in their minds. Yeah. And uh, specifically, there's some energy around divestiture. Um, they find the real options idea very interesting. Uh, I think on globalization, there's a huge debate. But, I'm uh, sorry, can, can, let me stop you a minute because you talked about real options. So what element of the real options stuff? Do they it's find interesting, it? yeah. So real options, it's not, you know, it's, it's more the metaphor of real options rather than the technical side. Mm-hmm. But some people want the technical piece. I would say 10%, 15%. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, but most of them resonate with the idea of a portfolio of options as a way to deal with uncertainty. Um, people do talk about exit, but they, you know, exit is very painful, right? We talk about it, but it's extremely painful and very yeah. political. Yeah. So I don't get too deep into uh, divestiture or acquisition. I talk much more about corporate strategy, which is, you know, what's the footprint of the firm? How do you create value? So I ask them to diagnose each of their businesses, which has competitive advantage, which does not have, and say, what would you do with the one that doesn't have competitive advantage today or mm-hmm. in the future? And that, I'm just kind of giving you a sense of where the action is. The action is much more around corporate strategy is more than the sum of business unit strategy. I think that's the nexus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Okay. And I interrupted you uh, when you, <laughs> you started talking about hot topics and you mentioned global strategy. Right. Uh, 
maybe there was not a, a longer list, but uh, no, did you want to elaborate I, on that? Yeah. I would just say that uh, um, there's a certain amount of faddishness in audiences, you know, so I tend to, I tend to take some risks. And so now people are saying, well, globalization is really bad. And I say, well, where's your shirt made and where's your component made? And has that changed yeah. no, your parts? And then say that, well, do you think they'll change? So, so one has to do a bit of that. And I'm willing to take that risk. Uh, and there is risk because they may say, you know, the guy is kind of, he's still thinking about the, you know, 2015. But uh, I think it's easy to fall in the trap of saying, Yes, you know, we should roll back everything from China. We should produce and I don't know where, you know, all those kinds of things. I'm not an advocate for China. I'm just simply saying this idea of hysteresis that Bruce Kogut has, which is, which is that you cannot change a supply chain from here to here. There will be kind of a, like in magnetism, a, a, some amount of loss of magnetism when you do that. I think that, that is something that they actually resonate with. Mm-hmm. And that opens up some discussion. Right. Then it's now, not about ideology. It's about look at your problems and we'll talk about it. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. When you think about strategy questions, corporate strategy questions worth uh, exploring that are, un- that are underknown. We've talked about a few of those. Anita's question. I think the issue that she raised on portfolio, yeah. uh, portfolio is a business. I don't think we know hardly anything about that topic. And uh, uh, that's certainly a topic that's worth addressing. What other questions uh, in corporate strategy come to mind? Um, If you were to advise, and I'm sure you have, uh, young scholars, uh, what would you encourage them to to look at? Um, I would say um, the one of the biggest ones is um, the tension between value creation today and value creation tomorrow. I think that is a very, very important question. <clears throat> the second question, and that has to do with, you know, the activist investor versus the, the internal team. How do you handle that? Um, and related to that is the question of um, how do you actually build your capabilities to do transactions? I think that's uh, continues to be an important question. So people are, it's, I think the research is showing that uh, acquisition capability and alliance capability are not necessarily positively correlated. There may be no correlation. There may be companies that have positive correlation, companies having negative correlation. And so I think that's an interesting question as to um, how firms kind of make choices when they may not be competent in particular transactions one piece of work that has not been done because it's difficult but is worth doing is the use of advisory firms versus in-house decision making um, how do we there's a lot of that happening out there uh, and i think if we put our minds to it we can get somewhere with that what do you mean explain that a bit for advisory but, firms you mean consultants consultants, or? consultants and investment bankers so you know you often see firms kind of choosing Uh, to go acquisition or alliance because that's what their experience base is. And I think the the supplementing the competence with advisors might actually allow them to make the decisions. But then 
I think the issue of execution comes in and I think we've got to do more work on execution, which is around um, inorganic transactions. How do you make them perform at the same level as organic in terms of the, in terms of the uh, political and organizational processes? I think that's a good question as well. Uh, and I think that those are some of the reasons why firms tend to underperform. I often hear this is this of can this just feel this may not be accurate. This is just a hypothesis based on fieldwork. But a lot of people say that the analytics of corporate strategy are not that difficult. It is the implementation that's difficult, and also that how structure drives strategy. How how the team kind of chooses their strategy based on what's worked in the past, which of course is the worst possible thing. Mm -hmm. This is a hypothesis. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, that is. Okay. Uh, there has been a question by Agnieszka. Uh, so I'd just like to invite her to and ask them. Uh, yes, the, I, I've just recently been hearing that people talk a lot about um, collaboration, about uh, innovation, open innovation, about ecosystems. Right. And it, it kind of links to what, what you've been mentioned about different sort of decision making and what do what are we going to do uh, with our in-house versus um, outside capabilities right. and this links very much to the relational view so i'm just wondering what are your thoughts on inter-organizational competitive advantage during the time of coronavirus pandemic hmm. well it's a great question um, you know firms are being required to uh, narrow their footprint because of financial reasons and so those who are more um, who are more capability oriented um, would presume to find partners and and work with them you know in other words move from wholly owned operations to part a network of partnerships in the extreme case uh, but then that raises your demand on relational capability so that's the first point and it's worth thinking about uh, a second point is um, a concept that we put, uh, Jeff Dyer and I put in a recent article that was the revisited relational view in 2018. We put in the concept of interdependence uh, and thinking about interdependence as an important variable that affects the uh, delivery of value, potential value, the value appropriation versus value creation but to some extent also drives value creation. Uh, and um, uh, I kind of explored that with uh, NK modeling as an approach where you can kind of input a certain level of interdependence, high interdependence, medium, low, or any level. And uh, it, it turns out that interdependence in the operations really matters. and. And the greater the interdependence, the greater the need for equity in an alliance relationship. So I think to your question, I would say there's a natural experiment happening. And as firms try to reduce their footprint, once the incentives are over, uh, they would be using fewer wholly owned operations, back to the question that Anita was asking. And then, so how do I do effective partnering? And in high interdependence situations, I probably need to avoid that and go to lower interdependence, but high asset specificity. So asset specificity and interdependence are not entirely correlated. Uh, and I think that's something to think about. 
Okay, thank you. Um, there's a question from Ab Abhi. Okay. Uh, hi, Professor Singh. That was an amazing, very, very, uh, very detailed answer to a lot of very interesting questions. So I very much appreciate that. Um, I think I, I had a question that kind of bounces off of Seaman Samina's question here. Uh, so there are lots of parallel topics that are running through strategy. And I was curious if you have seen topics that are fruitful for synergies, but they haven't spoken to each other, uh, but they should. And I think you have touched upon some of those already with Anita's right. previous question. Uh, so any thoughts about that? Thank right. You. And actually, I think Tim and Samina are, and Anita are very well positioned for this one. Uh, but let me try. I, I think... Um, it's a very good question. I think the, um, we're really trying to uh, sort of parse the synergies into different um, sources, right? Uh, whether they're asset-based or knowledge-based uh, or somehow organizationally dependent, operationally dependent. I think that's an important decomposition that needs to happen. Um, a second issue related to that is I would propose a hypothesis that firms vary in their ability to access synergies. And that ability to access synergies will be dependent in part on the, uh, the category of synergy. And particularly if there's high interdependence situations versus pure asset specificity situations, uh, I think that's that's sort of a domain where one can look at the what synergies have better average, uh, you know, access, and what synergies have lower higher average access but higher variance. Uh, I think that would be something to think about. Um, and and then the other point there would be uh, really to to uh, also think about, and I keep coming back to the idea of capability is there a repeatable process to access synergy? And if you don't have a repeatable process, then your mean value will be low. Your mean appropriation level, hypothesis, mean appropriation level will be low. But this is definitely worth pursuing as a